Welcome to the Book Club Girl podcast, where we chat about great books with awesome authors, and you, our listeners, get to ask the questions. I'm Tavia Kowalczuk, and today the novel we're discussing features a child narrator. So that got me thinking about other books I've read where the child is the voice that's telling the story. It made me think immediately of A Land More Kind Than Home by Wiley Cash. It's a debut novel told from the point of view of a little boy who doesn't quite understand what's going on, and so it actually adds to the suspense of the novel. And the other one that I thought of was is by Bryn Greenwood. It's called All the Ugly and Beautiful Things, and it's about a girl who falls in love with a man. And it creates all of these legal issues, as you can imagine, because she's underage and they have a true romantic relationship. It's a very, very thought-provoking novel, beautifully written. I remember hearing so much about that book and I've just never gotten around to it. But um, I think this is the second time you've recommended it to me, Tavia, so I definitely (laughs) need to pick it up. Hi, I'm Eliza Rosenberry, and to be honest, I feel like I can't really think of very many books with a child narrator. I don't know if it's because I'm just not drawn to those books, or they just haven't really crossed my bookshelf, but one book that I read recently that has one of the main characters is a child, and it brings to light all of these really interesting dynamics and relationships is called The Brilliant Life of Eudora Honeyset, and it's about an older woman who's like in her 80s nearing the end of her life and the friendship that she develops with her next door neighbor who is like a seven-year-old girl named Rose. And Rose and Eudora have this lovely friendship and it's a real feel-good kind of book. And so totally different from everything that you're talking about, Tavia, but I really loved that book as well. On today's show, two girls in Afghanistan, each living during a different time yet connected through their bloodline, must take care of themselves in abusive family settings and find a way to safety and stability. We'll be talking about the Own Voices novel, The Pearl That Broke Its Shell. And later in the show, we'll be joined by the author, Nadia Hashimi. And now we present to you, The Pearl That Broke Its Shell, Abridged. In 2007 Afghanistan, a girl's life is completely controlled by her father. Rahima and her sisters had once gone to school, but are now kept at home by their opium-addicted dad. To give her father a son, Rahima's mother turns her into a bacha posh, a girl who dresses as a boy and who enjoys their freedoms in society. Too soon, she is of age, and at 13 years old is turned back into a girl and is married off to the local warlord, a controlling and violent husband. To persist in the face of her abusive in-laws, including her husband's three other wives and their children, Rahima turns to the inspiring story of her great-great-grandmother, Shakiba. Shakiba was a girl deformed by hot oil that spilled on her face, making her undesirable to her family and as a wife. During a cholera epidemic, her siblings and her parents all die. Once Shakiba's extended family realizes she has been living alone, potentially bringing shame to them, they take her in as a servant, working her to the bone and physically and verbally abusing her. Later, she is given in service to the king as a guard to his harem. In this role, she dresses and lives as a man. Meanwhile, she lays the groundwork for the next time she is given away. As each of these young women, girls really, struggle to survive in environments designed to oppress women, they must use their wits and courage to manipulate their fates and to make a better life for themselves. What did you think of this book, Eliza? I felt like The Pearl That Broke Its Shell was so beautifully written, and 
I felt that the perspectives were so full and complex and full of context and nuance. Um, I really, really enjoyed the read. How about you? I agree. I think that the voice that the author uses, the style in which she writes the book, it fits the age and the education of these narrators. It's a very straightforward voice. There's not a lot of fancy stuff going on, but yet these characters manage to reveal themselves in all their complexity. Yeah, I completely agree. And to that point, I also think that I learned so much about Afghan history and culture that I I have not read very much about in the past. Nadia's the author, Nadia Hashimi, her her family, her parents are from Afghanistan. And so I was particularly grateful for the opportunity to read this book from this particular author. Yeah, the concept of Bacha Posh, and I hope I'm saying that correctly, is fascinating. It's this such a stark contrast to this American Western culture that we grew up in. And I just thought it was fascinating, the fact that a girl could be a boy and enjoy those freedoms for a limited period of her life. Yeah, it was – it really – made it so clear the differences in in the culture and the society of as far as the privileges of being a boy and the expectations of of both being a boy and of being a girl and I thought you know Shakiba's story the the great great grandmother's story that took place you know 100 years or so earlier was really wonderful her strength of character and fortitude was really admirable and sort of incredible to read about but more so, I really enjoyed how the the more contemporary character, Rahima, was able to draw some inspiration and strength from this story. You know, I think it has something to say about the power of passing down stories from generation to generation. Yeah. In fact, that's a good point. So Rahima's aunt, her mother's sister, tells Rahima and her sisters the story of Shakiba. Every time she comes to visit, she'll tell a little bit more of the story. Um, and it really inspires the girls to be more than society expects them to be, I think. Shakiba was my favorite character. I loved her. I thought she was so clever. Um, and I thought the ending, especially for Shakiba, was very satisfying. Yeah, I completely agree. Well, I want to toast these strong women in this book and to you, Eliza. Cheers, Tavia. Cheers. <laughs> I wanted to remind all of our listeners that we really love hearing from you. You can post reviews of the podcast and join our Facebook group, which is called The Book Club Girls, where you can talk with other book lovers and post your own questions to authors who appear on this show. You can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash The Book Club Girls. Today, we're joined by Nadia Hashimi, whose book, The Pearl That Broke Its Shell, is out now. Welcome, Nadia, to the Book Club Girl podcast. We are so excited to speak with you today. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. So to get things started, when we told our Book Club Girl Facebook group that we were going to be recording with you today, two different people asked us to ask you the same question. So we felt like we had to start there. Linda and Verna both asked what inspired you originally to write this story? And just a reminder to our listeners that this novel was first published back in 2014. That's a great question. It's one that I get a lot. And I think this book 
had been kind of probably rattling around in my head in some form for a long time, or at least the motivations for it. You know, I grew up in the United States with a mom who had graduated from Kabul University, became a civil engineer. Her sisters went to college. And so the pictures, the memories, and the the Kabul that she talked about when I was growing up was very different than the Kabul that I was seeing on the news And the life that she had, the opportunities that she had were very different from the opportunities my contemporaries would have had. You know, in 1996, I was heading off to college and girls in Afghanistan were being told that they could no longer attend school, even get a basic education. So the contrast was startling. It was alarming. And it made me, one, be extremely grateful for the opportunities that I had. And two, wonder, you know, what could have happened? Like, why did this country that gave my mother such opportunities become a country that could rob an entire generation of girls from so much? And, and that, you know, it bothered me. And so when you, when you sit down to try to write a novel, I think you do have to write about something that you care about deeply, that bothers you, you know, a point of friction that you can explore through some characters and hopefully get some kind of message or a better understanding. I love the way, Nadia, that you present, especially Rahima's story in, you know, you're just presenting it. It is what it is. You let the reader come to our own conclusions about the way she's being raised. And when we, Eliza mentioned that we had two people who were curious about the inspiration for the story, but we got so many comments from people who had read your other novels, who had actually invited you to their book club. So a lot of people in the Facebook Girls group, they are very excited about this episode of the podcast. And in fact, I want to give a shout out to Janice from the Facebook group who loves this novel. And she wants to know why you chose to narrate the book moving back and forth between the two voices of Rahima and Shakiba. The two different perspectives came to me from a, a black and white photograph that I saw. It's one from an archives where the king, King Habibullah, had used women dressed as men to guard his harem. And that was kind of like a moment where I said, huh, we've got this Bachaposh custom where we've got, you know, girls being dressed as boys. And then we've got this period of history in Afghanistan that would be really cool to explore. And we've got these women who are dressing as men for, for a different purpose. But what does it mean that they have to take on the veneer of a boy or of a man in order to have a different role in society? And what does it feel like to step into that when you're coming out of a different experience, which is really like a second-class experience? And so I thought it would be cool to connect these two individuals through the idea of legacy. That's so interesting. And Nadia, you mentioned in your last answer the custom of Bacha Posh. Would you mind explaining to our listeners a little bit about what that is? Sure. So the Bacha Posh custom is one that I grew up hearing about. And so people ask me, when did you first learn about it? I don't know. It just kind of is something that I grew up hearing about, although we didn't have anyone around us dressing as a Bacha Posh uh, in the United States. And it's something that fills a need. It's a practical fix. There are families who have only daughters, and then they may feel like they're lacking in that sense of pride. They don't have that son for the father to kind of hoist on his shoulders and say, you know, here is the boy who will carry on my name and provide for his parents because daughters are married off into other families. So 
this custom is one where, you know, for a family that's missing that boy, missing that source of pride, they can transform one of their younger girls, usually prepubescent, so before she's hitting puberty, into a boy, just a physical transformation, give her a different name, and then everybody kind of goes along with it. Some people either don't know, or if they're close enough to the family that they recognize that, you know, one of the daughters is now masquerading as a boy, they, you know, just kind of shrug their shoulders and move along because it's done commonly enough that everyone kind of knows of one if they don't have one in their family. And uh, the practice is done largely because there's a superstitious belief that if you transform one of your daughters into a son, the next child naturally born into the family will be an actual boy. And then there's a 50-50 chance of that superstition being proven correct, right? And then sometimes it's done for more practical reasons, where if they don't have a son, they may need uh, a child who can do some of the, you know, the legwork, the getting to the market and doing things without being, you know, attracting the attention of a girl being inserted into those public spheres. So would Rahima's experiences sort of not only growing up as Bachaposh, but also, you know, getting married at 13 and, you know, living in the kind of family that she did once she got married – would that still be common among girls growing up in the countryside of, a, of Afghanistan today, 14 years after the book is set? So I think I've written about um, a pretty extreme situation with this family, maybe extreme, but not unrealistic. And I, I think that's fine in that we don't usually write stories about the average person, right? We don't usually read stories about the average person. We usually read about the remarkable, the extraordinary. And that's what Rahima is. It's in no way meant to tell the reader or communicate that this is the typical experience for most, for all, for even, you know, 30% of Afghan girls. I don't know what the demographics would be. I don't know if we have a true record of what the demographics are looking like because uh, they're just not recorded very well. They're not recorded very well in the cities, and then outside of the cities, it's going to be even harder out into the countryside to get a good handle of what's going on. But yes, early marriage still does happen. There's even a movement in the United States to change child marriage laws because uh, some of the states have them down to, I think, at least a couple of years ago, it was, you know, still like 12, 13 with consent of, you know, it was just kind of ridiculous numbers. So does it happen? Yes. All that commonly? Probably not the circumstances around Rahima's life, thankfully. But it happens enough that it's something that needs to be addressed and thankfully is garnering attention in Afghanistan. Oh, that's that's good. Thank you for giving that context about this being, you know, sort of an extraordinary, what you've depicted in this book is an extraordinary situation. Yeah, I, I have to do that because I've been in enough conversations where it feels like, you know, this is the story of all Afghans. And it is by no means that. I mean, I am a product of an Afghan family. A lot of the people that I know are product of Afghan families, and we don't live that life, nor would we have lived that life had we lived in Afghanistan. My cousins who were born and raised in Afghanistan did not have that experience. So I feel like I owe it to my dad, to the men in my family, <laughs> to kind of clear the air a bit here. <laughs> Another of our Facebook group members read the book and loved it, uh, Carol, and she asked if there's sort of a predominant or sort of one main message, you know, all these years later after publishing the book that you still hope readers are able to take away um, from the stories of Rahima and Shakiba? I think this one is really centered around the importance of education down to like the core of just literacy. 
just being able to process the world around you, to be part of the world around you, to not have information fed to you, but to actually be engaged, interacting, and drawing from that well on one's own. And that's the hope that I have for girls in Afghanistan, for girls in the United States, for girls and children everywhere, um, is that we're able to teach people how to extract the information that they need and how to create for themselves and you know forge their own path and 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 build for themselves the life that they envision you're listening to the book club girl podcast where our guest this week is nadia hashimi whose novel the pearl that broke its shell is out now you can read more about nadia's book at bookclubgirl.com slash podcast coming up on the book club girl podcast we ask nadia about her literary white whale stick around This episode of the Book Club Girl podcast is brought to you by The Divines by Ellie Eaton. Named a most anticipated book of 2021 by Entertainment Weekly, CNN, Harper's Bazaar, MSN, E! Online, Refinery29, Bustle, Shondaland, Vulture, The Millions, Lit Hub, Electric Literature, and more. With the emotional power of normal people and the reflective haze of the girls, The Divines is a magnetic novel that moves between present-day Los Angeles and a British boarding school in the 1990s, exploring the destructive relationships between teenage girls. Available now wherever books are sold. Welcome back to the show. Each week, we bring you a fascinating new conversation with an author who's written a book we think is a great choice for book clubs to read together. Today, author Nadia Hashimi is here with us answering questions about her novel, The Pearl That Broke Its Shell. I have another question for you about the way that the story of Shakiba is passed down through the generations to Rahima and how, you know, I think it's so interesting and speaks to the importance of family stories and, and communication between generations. And I was curious, what do you think Rahima gained from access to these stories of past generations of women and her family? I think it gave her strength. Even if you're on social media, sometimes you scroll through and you see, you know, something remarkable that someone else has done. And we may follow some of, you know, our modern day icons or influencers, you know, people who are either in government or um, or in the activist world. And we take a look at that and they say and we, we think to ourselves, you know, whether we do it consciously or subconsciously, I think I do it, too. I'm like wow, look at that. I want to do something like that. Or even something that is, you know, one eighth of that or one one hundredth of that. And I think there's a bit of um, a transfer of energy that happens. And that is what I I believe she gained from Shikipa's story is, is to feel not completely alone in her, one, experience, but two, the desire to build a different kind of life, you know, the desire and the belief that she could create and then actually realize a different existence, one in which she did have a voice, that she did have a choice, and that she could have some agency, as you said. So just stating something for our listeners, um, which I gleaned when I read the material in the back of The Pearl That Broke Its Shell, there's like an extra bonus sort of discussion section. You are an Afghan-American woman who took your first trip to Afghanistan in 2002. And I'm curious how that trip and subsequent trips, and I feel like you've touched on this a little bit already, has informed 
the writing of your novels? So I had grown up in the United States with what I now describe as a spiritual connection to Afghanistan without having the physical connection to it. I grew up in a household where we spoke the language, we ate the food, we had the culture. Uh, I had the big fat Afghan family to keep all of that alive and thriving. And yet I didn't have the physical connection. I had not walked in the streets. I had never been to my mother's childhood home or my father's childhood home or, you know, been in a country just surrounded by people who called the same place homeland. So, and I was someone who always loved to travel. So I felt like I was circling the world and not ever landing in that one place. And so in 2000, it was actually 2003, but we finally made a trip there. My parents went with me and it was their first return since the early seventies. And so much had changed. So I was seeing it through my eyes, you know, having grown up with, like I said, my mother's cobble kind of in my head and in the pictures around our house. And then having seen what I saw through the nightly news, the devastation. Um, And then I was also watching it through my parents' eyes, them kind of, you know, coming back home to a home that they could barely recognize, literally unable to find my mother's child at home until she found like the corner of an old banister. The entire house was just gone. My father's home was, you know, some damages from different blasts over the years. And And then at the same time, seeing a ton of construction, this was 2003, there were internet cafes all over the place. So many people had cell phones and not that many people in the United States had cell phones at 2003, not to that extent. So it was really shocking the amount of rubble and then huge reconstruction efforts at the same time. I have not gone back since because that was sort of the golden period in Afghanistan Uh, And then, you know, life got kind of busy and took over for me on the U.S. side. But also it just, you know, the situation in Afghanistan kind of got better and better and then started to kind of dip down. And again, you would see these periods where there were upticks in violence and conflict and blasts. So there's a lot of insecurity also Mm -hmm. for some people around going back. Plenty of people do go back and travel back and forth, um, or at least not in the past year, maybe, but before that. Well, thank you for that. Nadia, our listeners always love to hear about what authors are working on next. So do you have a new novel coming out that you can tell us a little bit about? I do. I have Sparks Like Stars coming out on March 2nd. And uh, I'm really excited. Um, I think a lot of us have been, you know, kind of plodding along through 2020, looking forward to 2021. (laughs) And uh, it's been extra exciting for me to be able to do something that feels more normal and feels like I'm, you know, sending something good out into the world, hopefully. It's one that really was born out of book club discussions, you know, book club discussions where we talk about these different novels that I've written and different time periods in Afghanistan. The question always circles back to how did this happen? When did Afghanistan turn into this kind of start going down this road? And what I wanted to do was explore the moment in history that I feel was the tipping point that really set the country off into a downward spiral. And so that's what Sparks Like Stars is. It's really, I have to say, inspired by book club discussions. And I hope will help answer that question of, you know, what were the forces at play? What were the tensions? Where did they come from? And what is the history of the United States' involvement in the country, as uh, as well as the Soviet Union? And then start to analyze, you know, what went wrong? And hopefully when we do that, we have a better understanding of where we are today and then what we can do in the future too. It sounds amazing. I I really cannot wait to read it. Nadia, we have loved talking to you. And before we let you go, we have one final question for you. 
Each episode, we ask an author, what is your literary white whale? So this is a book that you've always meant to read or one you started reading and have never finished. So Nadia, what is yours? Okay. I knew this question was coming. (laughs) And I have been debating admitting this or not admitting this. I mean, I could say something like, you know, the Odyssey, which would be okay, I think, because it's the Odyssey, right? So that's okay. I am going to come clean here. I have never read a Jane Austen novel. And it's not even that I don't own them. I bought an entire set of Jane Austen novels (laughs) (laughs) like decades ago. And they sit on my shelf kind of mocking me. And I've tried a couple times. I just can't seem to get into it in the right way. Well, if this pandemic continues, this might be the time. We've had a lot of authors swear that during the pandemic, you know, They've tried to read their white whale and they've gotten X pages in. And so I'm waiting to see if my daughter gets assigned one of these books or maybe she picks up the interest and I'll read it with her. But there it is. It's out now. Nadia, thank you so, so much for joining us today for this conversation, for this book. We are so excited for Sparks Like Stars and so appreciative of your time. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for the chance to talk to my favorite people, which are our book clubbers. That was Nadia Hashimi, whose book, The Pearl That Broke Its Shell, is out now. To find out more about Nadia's book and how to buy it, head to bookclubgirl.com slash podcast, where you can also find links to everything mentioned in this episode. Like what you heard? Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, give us a rating and please leave a review. And another way to help spread the word about the Book Club Girl podcast is to tell a friend. It really helps others to find us. You'll hear from us again in two weeks, where we'll be speaking with Talia Hibbert, author of the engaging rom-com Get a Life, Chloe Brown. If you want to read the book before its podcast drops, head over to hc.com and use promo code BOOKCLUBGIRL, one word, all caps, for 25% off and free shipping for any book discussed on this podcast. You can join in our next conversation. We'll be speaking with Peter Swanson, author of the unputdownable novel of suspense, Eight Perfect Murders. If you'd like to pose a question for Peter, post them in the comments of our Book Club Girls Facebook group or email us, thegirls at bookclubgirl.com, or leave us a voicemail. Our number is 212-207-7336. Before we go, we'd like to thank Charles de Montebello, who produced today's episode. I'd also like to thank Katie Leary, our inimitable book club girl organizer, Ashley Mitchell, our book club girl social media guru, and to Nadia herself for setting up a microphone and recording from home. Until next time, I'm Tavia. And I'm Eliza. Happy reading. A string of vehicles pulled into the circular palace driveway disappearing one by one as their engines and headlights cut off. I watched silhouettes emerge and approach the main entrance of the palace. Nilab, they're here, I whispered. How many cars? Fifteen, maybe? It's too dark out, hard to tell. We're going to have to go soon, Nilab warned. Mother must have seen the cars approach, too. Her voice echoed from down the hall. The palace buzzed as it did on those special occasions when its grandest rooms filled with the most important guests. Sitara, where are you? I could not hide my disappointment. 
I looked at Nilab, sitting on the floor with her knees drawn to her chest. The lamplight cast a yellow glow on her cheeks. It's a weekend, I groaned. They want all the little children in bed when they open that box downstairs, Nilab said, repeating what her mother had told her. You might as well go to her before she finds you. But surrender had never been my style. What about you? I bet your mother is looking for you, too. Nilab shook her head. No way. I'm a young woman now. The rules have changed. This amused me. You're barely a full year older than me, and you'd have to wear heels to look me in the eye. Go ahead and tease, but if I wanted to, I could throw on one of my dresses and join them downstairs and no one would say a thing, Nilab declared, arms folded across her chest. I loved her too much to point out to her how flat it still was. Is Nilab with you? Mother asked, as if she'd forgotten that Nilab and I had been inseparable since I had learned to walk. It's past time for her to turn in too. Nilab avoided my eyes then. She hated to be wrong almost as much as I relished being right. My best friend and I had ducked into the presidential library so I could thumb through a text I'd discovered last week. The Book of Fixed Stars, was written a thousand years ago by an astronomer named Al-Sufi. Like me, he'd been fascinated by constellations, stories written in a pen of light. I'd drawn the velvet curtain so I could match the constellations on the page with the stars of the night sky. One by one, I found them and marveled that time hadn't stolen a single flickering gem. I'm here, Madar, I called out, glancing at the pages splayed before me. Al-Sufi had sketched the serpentine tale of Draco, a fork-tongued dragon circling Ursa Minor. I had read, but had yet to confirm through observation, that it was visible all year long from Kabul's latitude. Our months were named after constellations, and soon it would be the month of Sar, or Taurus, 